Take our Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. I trust, I, I certainly hope that if your heart was not prepared as of yet to worship the Lord together, um, following our worship part of our song service, I, I'm assuming that it is now especially after an anthem played for us about God as our creator who is worthy of our worship. That's Revelation 4.11. And reminder of his great love for us and his son who's restored our relationship to himself through Christ. Praise the Lord for your voices and thank you for the instrumentation that instructs our hearts. Thank you for your preparation. Let's read the first six verses of chapter 4, and then we are going to divide these six verses up into five sections that we are going to preach through the next two times we're together. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy... We do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things, the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said... Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. All the way through the early parts of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is discussing what it means to have a ministry that has integrity. You know this if you've been able to follow along since we began in chapter 2. A few weeks ago. So chapter 4 in the first six verses highlights for us a few more attributes of ministry integrity as pertaining to these five particular points as to motivation. As to motivation in verse 1. As to not just motivation but as to activity. Ministry activity. We find that in verse 2. As to a divine rationale, a thought process that we find in verses 3 and 4. As to our message in verse 5. And as to a divine conclusion in verse 6. As I stated earlier, we'll be looking at those five points in these six verses over the next two weeks we go back to verse 1 and consider our motivation first. 
which begins with a powerful world word here, which is therefore, which tells us that everything that we're going to see here in these next six verses is immediately connected to chapter number three, particularly the end of chapter three. Paul's motivation to have a trustworthy ministry springs forth from all that we've learned here in chapter 3. Paul takes a look back in his mind and heart at all that he's penned in those 18 verses of chapter 3. And he reminds us in chapter 3 and verse 12 that this new covenant life that we found in Christ has given us great boldness in verse 12, has given us a, a great hope. So having moved past his reminder to the Corinthians of the glory of the new covenant as compared to the old, he now takes a humble but confident stride forward to explain to the church his practical rationale for his ministry of integrity among them in relationship to motivation. Right? His motivation, he was motivated to be consistent. New covenant ministry in Christ cultivates ministry consistency. He was motivated to be consistent. You find that here in the next phrase right after that first word, therefore. Therefore, since we have this ministry. Literally, it says, since we are always having this ministry. Remember the religious ones, the Judaizers, were tricksters. They always wanted to be promoted by others, and they were always interested in self-promotion. They always desired a, a new introduction. They craved attention. They would use enticing words of men's wisdom and mix a little truth with a little air to gain an audience. These religious ones would just come and go from within and from without the church. It doesn't seem that their ministry motivation was one of enduring consistency, but one of recognition and one of notoriety and popularity. Growing up in a pastor's home for 23 years and now in the ministry for 29, I've seen my share of professing believers that come and go from within and from without the church. And they maintain that diatrophies-like spirit and mindset that John writes of. They're not a new breed. They just come with all the different titles and names, but with the same religiously soiled garments in their travel bags. But Paul is very clear. His ministry would be consistent, accompanied with the new covenant character found in Christ alone. And it would be a consistent one. Longevity with proper Christ-like motivation is a rare combination in the New Testament church era. Motivations for doing church abound since the church began. But in our time, it's no different. But for Paul, he longed for the Corinthians to do the compare and contrast between himself and the Judaizers. Paul had preached a singular message with authority and power from the first day he met them. That message had not changed. 
character change that had come from him receiving that message as an apostle of Jesus Christ from his conversion in Acts chapter 9 had not changed, only to grow more towards Christ's likeness. His love for them, his availability to them had not changed. He had no plans on that changing. But for those who are just merely religious, Paul found them, the Corinthian church needed to realize that they were the opposite of consistency because their motivation was impure. Paul's motivation was for the Corinthians to embrace his consistent messaging in both what he preached and how he lived. And in so doing, he would regain their spiritual attention to focus upon the sufficiency of Christ and his character in life. Remember chapter 2 and verse 1? Could you go back there, if you would? Excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, Are we beginning again to commend ourselves? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. He begins with two questions in relationship to ministry consistency. Remember, the Judaizers are those that come and go, and Paul says no. In New Covenant ministry, where the law was your tutor unto grace, and where grace has transformed your life in Christ, that grace develops ministry consistency and character longevity. Paul's unfeigned love and ministry for the Corinthian church was consistent. Christ's influence through him and among them was not going to waver, and he desired the Corinthian heart to be settled in their own spiritual consistency because the religious ones had developed unrest. His second motivation not just consistency, but humility. He says here in the next phrase, as we have received mercy. The grammar here is very, very clear. He's reminding the Corinthian believers to go back to the moment where they can remember when they were born again. They might not remember a day or a date, but they can remember a moment where the grace of God miraculously transformed their heart, and from that moment forward, Christ's ministry to their heart by way of the Holy Spirit had remained consistent. And he had developed ministry consistency in Paul's heart that he was wanting the Corinthian people to see again so that they develop ministry consistency in their own life, but also the disposition of humility. Early in quarantine, we read chapter 1 and verse 1. If you go back there with me in the book of 2 Corinthians, it's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Why do I go back to that verse? Well, the word we here, right? It says, as we have this ministry, we have received mercy. We have received mercy. Who's the we? A lot of people believe that it's Paul writing this letter with Timothy 
speaking of themselves. And that's fine if you want to do that, because certainly that's true. I really believe in the direct context that he's speaking to the Corinthian believers, trying to get their eyes off of the religious hucksters and get their eyes on them and follow them as long as they're following Christ. He's asking the Corinthian church to personally go back again to the time when they were born again and remember the supernatural change the Lord by the Spirit had brought about on their hearts. But while the grace of God in Christ is the focus of chapter 3, Paul turns his attention now to another attribute of God's, which is his mercy. Mercy is God withholding from us, as you know, what we do deserve. While grace is God giving something to us that we don't deserve. Paul reminds these saints of Corinth that at the moment they were saved, God gave them mercy. For each of them and for each of us, God withheld from us the personal and eternal judgment we deserved because of our own spiritual brokenness. Paul lived his life from the moment of his conversion humbly bowing his knee to the mercy of God. And he writes often of that in his letters. Go with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1, and let's read a little bit about what he told Timothy, who was the pastor at Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and let's look at verse 12. He has a little testimony of thanksgiving here that describes his humble thankfulness to the Lord for his mercy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience in an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Go over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. Back to our text for this morning and back a couple pages to the left in your Bibles or on your device. By the way, if you have your Bible on your device, don't ever lose your paper Bible. I'm just saying, use it. I use my Bible on my device every day. But don't ever lose your paper Bible. Don't ever lose your paper Bibles. And just remember that request. In time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's look at verse 9 and 10 together. For I am the least of the apostles. Look at the mindset here. Look at the humility here. And not fit to be called an apostle. Don't you feel that way as a Christian sometimes? 
Anytime Paul talks about his apostleship, he's talking about his conversion because it was at his conversion where he became an eyewitness of a resurrected Christ. I'm only worthy because of God's grace. I'm not worthy at all of myself because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Go over with me to letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, and let's read verses 6 through 11 together. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Again, you see this disposition of humility overwhelmed by the mercy of God. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took our punishment from us. He took that which we deserved away from us and put it on himself. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we have been saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The religious person, as you go back to our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the religious person struggles with humility because they are consumed with their, themselves and their own ability. Someone who holds on to their religion and even someone in their own context, maybe in their own community, your own neighbor, that holds on to their own ability to save themselves through works of philanthropy or good works of religion is not able to exude a spirit-filled humility. Anyone who, who seeks to live Christian virtues of their own strength, not remembering what God has spared them from, has not known Christ. Anyone that has known Christ and has known the mercy of God knows what they've been spared from and walks humbly, always believing they're undeserving, always overwhelmed with such love that could be so merciful. A religious opportunist has not realized the mercy of God and continues to live their own self-righteous lifestyle in their own kingdom and in the Corinthian church in a ministry inconsistency full of pride. Do you remember how Paul described those who lived by the old covenant in chapter 3? They're full of self-glory. They're adorned with their own adequacy. They had no problem condemning others by the law without giving hope of forgiveness and life in Christ. And they decided to live with hardened minds and 
hearts. But that's not the disposition that an understanding of God's mercy in Christ develops in us, is it? It's the opposite. I had a great uncle. I would say probably was my dad's um, singular testimony that uh, brought my dad to Christ when he was in his early years uh, playing ball at Kent State University. And uh, my great uncle was born again when he was 17. He was the head of what we call, what we used to call coal portage or coal portering, uh, which was the head of evangelistic outreach at Old Moody Church with Harry Ironside. And he lived to be 99 years old. So you do the math. This man was saved for a few decades. I only had, I can only remember having one time to meet him. And it was in his 98th year. By that time, he had moved to a retirement home in Kissimmee, Florida. And we took a vacation to go camping in and around central Orlando. And we stopped in. My dad always wanted us to meet uh, our great uh, Uncle Dana. And it wasn't all that exciting for me. It's a man I'd never met before. He was 98 years old. Um, but I basically went because my dad told me to. Um, what interest does a junior high kid have in sitting for hours with a 98-year-old man when we're on vacation and we should be hiking the Magic Kingdom, right? But that visit uh, really transformed my understanding, even as a young boy, of the mercy of Christ. My uh, great-uncle Dana had a tremendous passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He never, never lost any part of his mind. He was very lucid up until they breathed his last. He was a very articulate man. He was a very compassionately bold man. And when you walked into the room and sat down, you were transfixed on who he was as a person. I'll never forget, he went right into the gospel with us kids as soon as we sat down. He, I can't say he didn't have any interest in who we were uh, as kids. I can't say he didn't that he didn't care how old we were or what we enjoyed doing or whatnot. He just was overwhelmed by the mercy of God and went straight into telling us about Christ and having us each give him our own personal testimonies of salvation. It's the first time I ever met the guy in my life. But I, I can remember was he was giving his testimony. He wept through the whole thing. I remember him just being amazed that since he was 17, that God would have mercy on his sin-sick soul. And at 98 years old, he was just as amazed, if not more at 98, than he was at 17. 
as the tears came down his face and he was telling us how the grace of Christ had changed his life and given him great cause to live with Christ's character and, and how now at 98 he could almost see the face of Christ himself. That changed me because I saw a man that really understood mercy and because he understood mercy, he understood humility. And the longer he lived under or with the mercy of Christ, the more humble he became. And it was very attractive. It was very spiritually attractive to me as a young boy. And then for him to turn to us and say, Timothy, tell me when you came to know Jesus and tell me how he changed your life. remember finishing that conversation as best as my junior high mind can remember and he said kids remember you don't deserve anything he's given to you let me tell you what you did deserve and always remember that always remember that we had our own uncle Dana in our own midst recently pass away and whenever you would ask him how he's doing, he would say, better than I deserve. That was attractive, wasn't it? That's a disposition of humility, isn't it? Someone who's overwhelmed by mercy, understanding what God had removed from him. So Paul's divine motivation was one of consistency. Because the grace of God had demonstrated itself consistent in his life and that was the antithesis of the inconsistency of the religious racketeers it develops in us a, a, a humble motivation and finally uh, a determination here it's a motivation of determination he says here in the last phrase as you go back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 if you're not there already of this particular verse it says we do not lose heart we do not lose heart literally we do not lose our motivation while striving to accomplish a common goal this is a deeper and equally convictional mindset as consistency the Corinthian would have read this word and been drawn immediately to Paul's determination to persevere in ministry despite heavy and horrific trials that he bore. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Maybe you just slide down your page a little bit. And let's look at verse 7 that we're going to be looking at in a couple of weeks. Verses 7 through 12 and then verses 17 and 18. He says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we will live, for we who live are constantly 
being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. In verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul's consumed with divine motivation that demonstrates itself in ministry consistency, humility, and durability. Persevering well under conflict and the pressure associated with it. So let's remember these three kinds or aspects of ministry motivation. Let's understand that New Covenant people in the New Testament church should be easily identified as people who are well-motivated according to consistency and humility and durability. And beware of those among us. And right now I really don't know who they are. But always beware of those among us who exemplify inconsistency. Always call attention to themselves. And don't endure well. And quite possibly they've never met the Christ that they say they know. Anyone who claims Christ and tempts you unto inconsistency in the local church, in worship or service or Great Commission living. Anyone in the church who tempts you to be self-motivated and to act pridefully in anyone in the church that does not persevere well and tempts you to walk with them. Be careful. Be careful. That's the divine motivation. We finish this morning with divine activity, beginning in verse 2. And Paul states this activity both negatively and positively. We're going to go in that order. When we think of church activity, we naturally dwell upon the flurry of ministry and fellowship that the church enjoys without a cal- throughout the calendar year. And that's all fine and good, but Paul clearly defines what and how our personal ministry is and does. He says here, we have renounced the hidden things because of shame. Literally, he says, we have renounced the disgraceful, disgraceful things that have been done in underhanded Ways And folks, he's talking about again the old covenant religious ones of chapter 3. Pastor Mike did a series in 2 Peter chapter 2 some time ago. And that whole chapter lends itself to a full and transparent description 
of what falsehood is and what falsehood does. You can take Second Corinthians, Second Peter chapter two, and lay it right over the top of the um, the vices of falsehood of Second Corinthians chapter three and people who are just merely old covenant people. But Paul says, no, we have renounced those disgraceful, underhanded ways of deceiving the flock of God. He says, we're not walking in craftiness. He says, we refuse to practice cunning. Of course, Paul is speaking again of those inconsistent religious peddlers of falsehood. But remember, go over with me to chapter 11 again. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Let's look at chapter 11 in the first six verses. Remember, chapters 10 and 11 describe uh, to us uh, the religious people that had infiltrated from within and without the, the Corinthian church. But he uses this word craftiness again in association with someone who was learning craftiness from this someone. Verse 1 says, I wish you would bear with me a little in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that Christ I might represent you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray by the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, this is the ones he's described, these merely old covenant folks of chapter 3, whom we have not preached, or you have received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully, for I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you and in all things. Paul is specifically saying that the mere religious minister always has crafty ways to gain a following. And he uses a morsel of truth mixed with error to gain the attention and then to deceive the naive listener. Their goal to convince you, the flock, that you can save yourself. That because you are made in God's image and you can do good things, that your good works should be commended by man and recognized by God. That you are to be commended by God for just merely obeying the law and leading others to obey the law. And then your content of your character is to be measured by the same. Paul calls this walking in craftiness. You're using the word of God in a deceitful way. You're mixing truth with error. And you can sound really good and be spiritually worthless in your messaging. He goes on to say, negatively, we, we, we certainly aren't speaking in craftiness, nor are we adulterating the word of God. The word for adulterating is used here only here in the New Testament. It literally means tampering with. The New Testament here would have understood this Im immediately to be um, 
a physical reality in their life. This would be someone that was um, selling good wine, but before they put it on display, they had watered it down. They had diluted the wine. They had tampered with it. And Paul says here, no, we're not tampering with the Word of God. We're not diluting its message. Paul had in mind here, Cruz says, the corruption of the Word of God by mingling it with foreign ideals. The Word of God here, I think, needs to be understood in light of its context. When Paul says the Word of God here, he's not directly speaking to the whole of God's revelation, which we understand to be the Bible. He's speaking here specifically to the content of the gospel message. And I think that's abundantly clear, not only here in chapter 4, but where we're coming from, from chapter 3. Be careful with anyone who dilutes or waters down the specific message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beware of anyone that does not find Christ to be enough and exclusively enough to save a soul. Beware of anyone who speaks often of Christ but never solely trusts in Christ alone. Let that sink in. I know that sounds so ridiculously elementary. But it's necessary in Bible-believing churches for this to be preached. Solely resting in the sufficiency of Christ alone with no human effort to save a soul and to grow a soul. Is God's grace powerful enough to do that? We all know he is. It is. So the religious ones were ones deluding they're adding to the exclusive message of salvation alone through Christ alone by grace alone. So Paul is actively denouncing the activity of falsehood while reminding the Christian of their positive approach of ministry, which is stated in this next phrase. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is what we're not doing. This is what we are doing. This is what we should be doing. The word manifestation here just simply means full disclosure or a comprehensive understanding. Paul uses it in chapter 5 and verse 11 that we'll see in a few weeks in reference to our standing before God who omnisciently will know everything about who we are and what we've done in our ministry before him when we stand on Judgment Day at the Bema Seat. He uses the same word manifestation in chapter 2 and verse 14 where we talked about us walking in a triumph. And our lives are those lives exuding that sweet aroma that permeates and saturates the environment of the parade of the triumph. It's completely noticeable and obvious to everyone stands along the parade route, the Roman triumph. You remember that. So in active ministry, we carry on our hearts the full conviction to put on display before man truth, 
gospel truth, both in the content of the gospel message and the character that it develops in our own lives. In our context, again, the truth of the gospel and how it's miraculously transformed us. And Paul proclaims here that our lives are put on display, full manifestation, full influence before all men. Before all men, saved and unsaved. This is a profound declaration of the reality of the influence of the Christian life, your life, my life. It's just not a Sunday go-to-meeting influence. It's a 24-7, 365 influence before saved and unsaved. Paul is clearly relaying to the Corinthian believer that mere religious influence will impress some men for some of the time. But life in Christ becomes a humble light brought about by miraculous grace demonstrated in a changed life before all people you interact with throughout the course of your week. And remember, friends, every man is made in the image of God. And though fallen in their own sin, they're endowed with a basic moral and rational ability to discern between right and wrong. And your life in Christ is lived before them as a testimony of how grace transforms every part of your life in Christ alone. And your gospel life is an appeal, as it is an influence to every conscience of every student you go to school with, of every teacher that you learn under, of every co-worker you labor with, of every neighbor you speak over the fence to, of every grocer who checks you out, of every friend you lift weights with. Your life is a manifestation before every image bearer that Jesus changed you, both in the content of your speech and the way you live. They know. They know. But you know what? They're really not going to know until they know you well. That's what discourages my heart for decades is the way the church did evangelism. We did evangelism by bringing hundreds on our site that we did not know to give them the content of the gospel and then we just invited them to know the Jesus of the gospel but we didn't allow them the opportunity to watch our lives who had embraced the gospel. We never gave ourselves the opportunity to be this manifestation in this way. I would say the way we used to do evangelism, it wasn't wrong. But it was the easiest route. Paul is saying here positively that I am... I am actively involved in being this personal manifestation of 
all that the transforming grace of God has done in me and is now doing through me, and I've got to take time to be with these people who are image bearers, who have a moral, rational ability to figure out, yeah, something did happen in your life, Tim. I've even seen you make mistakes, get those right, and even ask forgiveness of me, and I've watched you live as consistently as you possibly can, and someone else is at the controls of your life, because I know it's not you. People have to know you that well to be able to determine that what you're doing that's good is not of you. That takes a long, long time. So are you actively manifesting the grace of Christ before others in building redemptive relationships? Paul talks about what he's not going to do, but he's saying this is what we can do and we should be doing. Now who are those people? Does a face, does a name pop up immediately in your mind and heart? Maybe from someone back home, if you're a student away from school, maybe someone right now in the natural rhythms of your life, who is that person? You know what, if a face and a name doesn't come up in your mind's eye, would you just pray that the Lord would give you one? You've done so much to change me, Jesus. So much to transform me. And it says here, my goodness, we are commending ourselves in Christ to every man's conscience in whose sight. Who's watching? This is not a guilt-trippy kind of thing. Paul's not trying to guilt-trip the Corinthian believers. He's saying, God's watching. Just as a dad would watch a child succeed on a ball field. Just as my parents used to watch me preach, sing, play, and they would thank God and be proud. This is the kind of in the sight of God we're talking about here. Because in Christ, God's proud of you, if I can say that. He's excited about his son's development of his character in you. He's proud to put you on display before our culture. Because it's the display of his son in the sight of God. We're to commend ourselves to every man's conscience. We've got to be able to morally and rationally discern again that there's something distinctly different about you. Okay? I always tried to teach my kids growing up, and I know it was an imperfect process. All of us parents that have reared children know how imperfect the process is. Whatever class, whatever, your, whatever team, whatever job you have, live the character of Christ before others as their friend so that they can see, commend yourself to their conscience so that they can see. We're going to find out the next time we're together, there's not going to be 
thousands or hundreds that bow the knee to that manifestation. It's going to be one. And these people, these friends that you live Christ before, they might not even show immediate desire to know, but believe me, kids, their consciences are working. They're made in the image of God. They're watching the difference. They're hearing the difference. And they're seeing you love them in a way that they've not been loved before. And I'll guarantee you, when they're in their 20s and 30s and life is knocking them upside the head, guess who they're going to call? And I'm telling you, it's happening. It's happening. One at a time. But you're not going to get the call until you're willing to live the life of the person who's an image bearer that's fallen to carve out that time. You have to commend yourself to the conscience of these folks as a new covenant saint. And God will give you that opportunity and God will bring his fruit. And we do all this as adopted children in the sight of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for The Apostle Paul under inspiration detailing for us a well-motivated, consistent, humble, determined, durable ministry. We thank you, Lord, for the new covenant activity of a New Testament saint in relationship to what we will not do and what we, by grace, are doing. Pray, Lord, as we continue to walk through what it means to have a ministry with integrity, that as we sung before the message, may the Holy Spirit help us to understand your living word and apply it practically to our hearts according to the context of the truth of it's been written, as it's been written. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.